Our text from God's Word this morning that we're going to be looking at is Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Luke 11, 24 through 28. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes... It finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, I ask that you would uh, shed light on this text by your spirit that we would learn what Jesus wanted those who were in his midst to learn. Father, I pray that uh, we would not be fooled by outward attempts to clean up our lives, but that we would trust solely in Christ. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it's helpful to go back to the beginning of the Bible, look at the first sin that has ever come uh, upon the face of the earth, and learn about what human beings have been doing ever since uh, the very beginning, the first moment that guilt came into their lives. Uh, and so uh, I want to begin by looking at Genesis uh, chapter 3 and verse 7. And as you're turning there, I'll uh, explain the title of my message, The Extreme Danger of Clean Living. Uh, you might uh, desire to live a clean life. You might hope that your children would live a good life moral, upstanding life. Uh, but what we're going to see today is Jesus taught the danger, in fact, the extreme danger uh, of putting your hope in cleaning yourself up. In Genesis 3, verse 7, right after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, I don't know if we can ever totally understand what it would be like to have never had guilt before, to have, uh, to perfectly walk with Christ and, and the Father and the Holy Spirit in, in the garden every day, have this warm relationship with Him, to have this new marriage as God created Eve and gave her to Adam. What would it have been like the moment that sin entered the world and guilt 
came upon them in my girls' children's uh, uh, story Bibles. It talks about maybe the air got cold and fear flooded their hearts. The relationship, this marriage relationship, instantly falls apart with one sin. We know that because Adam right away says, the woman whom you gave me, gave me the fruit to eat. And God had just told Adam, if you eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you'll surely die. So Adam's saying, kill her. Take her life, not my life. But the very first thing man does the first thing they realized in verse 7 is the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. Have you ever had that dream where you're at work and you forgot to put your pants on and you're embarrassed, you're trying to figure out how to get? That would be horrible. And yet they realize they're naked and we just read this so fast, but it says... What they did is they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And I don't know how well that would work or what it would be like to, to kind of frantically, you realize you're in this situation, everything's changed, and you start looking around to grab leaves and you try to sew them together and fit them on. And you see the first attempt of mankind to clean themselves up on their own apart from God. It's the first attempt at trying to earn your salvation back. Trying to make yourself better even though you know you're naked and you know that you've sinned and there's this guilt. Let's cover it. Let's just make it disappear. Let's make it go away. But we know that in chapter 3, God's mercy is even shown as God curses the serpent. He says there's going to be one born that'll come from a woman who will crush the head of the snake that tempted them to sin. And not only that, right before he drives them out of the Garden of Eden, we read this in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The first blood ever shed would have been the blood of an animal to cover their nakedness, their shame. And God made it. God did it as a foreshadowing of a sacrifice that would cover the shame of mankind to come. This is the central point of this whole book, right? How can sinful people ever be restored to a perfect and holy God who cannot shuffle sin under the rug? Sin has to be punished. You can't work yourself out of sin. So how can you ever be made right with God again. We know the answer is Jesus Christ. God sent his own son 
to live the life you and I could never live. He never sinned. He lived that life to give it to us as a gift to cover us, to take our sin, give us his righteousness so that we can be made right with God again. And yet, even though most of you know that, we're tempted to take that gospel and begin to throw it away for moralism. I want to read a quote from John MacArthur. If you ever notice, whenever I'm about to say something controversial, I want someone else to say it for me. So at least if you're going to be upset with me, you can be upset with him too. So let John MacArthur get up on your toes this morning. Here's what he says. He says, in recent decades, there has been an increasing dis." Uh, distress among Christians about the rampant moral corruption in society. Is that true for you? Have you looked around and seen the rampant immoral behavior that's happening in our culture today? Concern for the influence of this tolerance and advocacy of sin on present and subsequent generations has led to the efforts of the church to affect moral change through political activism, media exposure, exposure, social pressure groups. Many evangelicals view promoting Judeo-Christian values, teaching morality to school children, and politicking the nation back to moral living as a priority for believers. Since such societal morality is also on the agenda of apostate Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, and even some atheists, the church becomes trapped in compromising the ungodly alliances that undermine the clarity of the gospel. He goes on to write, True Christians rightly decried the abandonment of the saving gospel for the social gospel by the liberal mainline denominations in the previous century. Yet the emphasis among current professing believers on restoring public morality amounts to nothing more than a form of neoliberalism. Once again, the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is being set aside in favor of a different non-saving message. Albert Moeller, the president of my seminary, defines moralism as this. The belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Moralism produces our produces sinners who are potentially uh, better behaved. But the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms sinners into adopted sons and daughters of God. We must be careful that we don't throw away the gospel of Christ in the name of having our neighbors live the way we wish they would live. In the name of Moralism. Paul gives us this warning. If 
But if even we, including himself, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel to you contrary to the one that was preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before and now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. We should be careful that in the name of right views right political views, we don't throw away the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, the marching orders of every Christian and of every church is clear as a bell. Listen to what it is. He says, all this is from God, this new birth, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here's the title of our ministry, reconciliation. Not cleaning people's exterior lives up so they fit better in the culture we would like to see. Reconciliation, that is In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Our ministry is to go tell sinners that God won't count their trespasses against them if they'll receive Christ. So here's our title. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The only way true moral change will ever come about is if the Holy Spirit enters in to a person's heart and the church should not give away their time and their money and their efforts to something that cannot put the Holy Spirit inside them. Our message is to represent the King. We're ambassadors for Christ, that He would get the glory. And Jesus wanted those in His day to realize the danger of preaching moralism. This is what we'll see in our text. If you remember... Last week, we saw the Pharisees bring this charge against Jesus as he cast out a demon. They brought the propaganda that came down from Jerusalem. It was was seen in Galilee and it was seen in Judea. And the propaganda was this. Every time you see Jesus do a miracle, say it's in the power of Satan. That's how he does it. They couldn't deny the miracle. We don't have one shred of evidence from the early church in history or in the scripture that anyone challenged one miracle of Jesus. The only thing they could say is, is that it was done by the power of Satan. And Jesus, in being merciful, shows them how bankrupt this logic is. He says, oh, really? So you're saying I cast out Satan by Satan? By the power of Satan, any kingdom divided against itself can't stand. He says, the logic doesn't make sense. And then he also shows that they're just not honest. They're really inconsistent. Because what he says is, he says, if I cast out demons by the power of Satan, by whom do your sons cast out demons? 
Their sons try to cast out demons, but as you see in Acts 19, they couldn't really do it. And yet they said that was by the power of God, but when Jesus does it, it's by the power of Satan. He says, come on, let's be honest here. You really want to go with that argument? And then what does Jesus say? If a person has a palace and there's a strong man guarding the palace, the goods are safe as long as the strong man is the strongest man in the room. But if a stronger man comes and binds up the strong man, now he can plunder his goods. And Jesus' point is, ever since I began my ministry, I've been plundering Satan and his kingdom. Every demon that comes into contact to him bows down to him and says, oh, don't come before your appointed time. They're scared to death of him. He's plundering the kingdom of Satan. And then he says these words. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, imagine the Pharisees, these are the superstars of Jesus' day. These are the religious elite. They're here. They just pointed at Jesus and said, he does it by the power of Beelzebub. The worst thing they could say about Jesus, they said. And then Jesus says, shows how their argument doesn't make sense. And then he says, who's ever not with me is against me. Who's ever not gathering for this kingdom is scattering. There's two types of people in the world, those with Christ and those without Christ. And everyone in the crowd would be saying, you mean to tell us that the most religious people we know evidently are not with him because they just said he does what he does by the power of Satan? So the question is, is who's with Christ? Who is it that's with him? If there's only two groups, God's never going to say, well, these ones are really bad. They're going to hell. These ones were kind of neutral about Jesus, and these ones were with him. No, there's two categories. Those with him, and if you're not with him, even if you're the nicest person on the face of the earth, Christ says you're against him. And then he points out this, fact that would have been shocking. And it's in our text. He says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, let's just say Jesus just cast a demon out like he did almost every day of his ministry, it seems. He casts a demon out. The man that was tormented by that demon all of a sudden has the ability to begin to clean his life up as the demon Leaves. Look at what it says. It passes through waterless places seeking rest. When a demon is not living inside a soul, it's like it's in a desert land. It's not comfortable. It's restless. It's, it's, it's like you would be in a waterless place. The demons uh, throughout Scripture, the evil spirits, were kind of uh, uh, often seem to gather in the desert. As the Spirit drove Christ into the desert, that's when Satan attacks him. And so what he says is, is it says, 
when he passes through waterless places seeking rest and finds none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Isn't that scary? To my house. This is demon possession. He lived there. That was his dwelling place. He left for a time, but then he comes back to see the state of his house. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. This is interesting. You think the demon might say, oh man, he's got his life cleaned up. I better go somewhere else. But instead, verse 26 says, then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. Matthew's account of a very similar teaching uh, that would have been done months earlier in Galilee in Matthew 12, 44, adds one word to Jesus' statement. It says this, I'll return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. It's an amazing thing Jesus taught that someone who can clean their life on the outside up but don't have anything on the inside, one demon used to dwell in that man, but now eight do. And the seven extras were more evil than the first. The extreme danger of morally reforming your life apart from the Holy Spirit entering your soul. This is what Jesus is teaching. It's very similar to what we'll see when we get to Luke 17. Uh, imagine how many people would have been like this had a demon cast out of them they're thankful for that and they go live their life but they don't trust in him savingly we have this illustrated in Luke 17 verse 11 uh, and I'll read through verse 19 listen uh, uh, to how this is illustrated on the way to Jerusalem he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, get the picture. Ten lepers calling out saying, have mercy on us, Jesus. You're our master. You're our master. Have mercy on us. And he went... And he saw them and said to them, go show yourself to the priests. And they went and were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, not a Jew. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Could it be that nine other 
lepers just received a healing and then went on with their lives and never trusted in Christ in a saving way. One of the best pictures we're going to get of the Pharisees is coming up later in chapter 11, Luke 11. I just want to read through it quickly with you. Uh, So the question we're answering today is, who is Jesus? And our first answer is not the morally clean. Because there's never been more outwardly clean people on the face of the earth than the Pharisees. Never. You have never watched your life as close as the Pharisees watched their lives. They not only, well, we'll get to it. Look at verse 30, 37, Luke eleven thirty-seven. 37. What I would pay to just be a fly on the wall. In fact, you wouldn't want to be here. How many of you enjoy awkward conversations where you have to speak the truth to somebody and you know they're not going to like it? Have you ever known someone that was going to have to go say that and you're like, I'll pray for you, but I'm glad I'm not you. I guess sometimes I find myself in that situation where you're not looking forward to it. Well, if you would have been with Jesus this day, this would have been one of those days. Because here's what it says. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. So Jesus gets invited in to have a meal with a Pharisee. All right. How's the meal going to go? The Pharisee was astonished to see that he, that he did not first wash before dinner. He couldn't believe it. He looked at Jesus and astonished is the word Luke gives us. He was shocked that he wouldn't wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, Cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now, you got to understand, everywhere else you walk as a Pharisee, the Jews bowing down to you. You're, you know, you're like the celebrity. You're the man. And you invite Jesus in. And they're a little critical of him. He doesn't wash his hands. And he says, you wash the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And then he says, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms those things that are within. Behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So when they're out in their garden and they're getting little seeds, they're like, oh, I got 10 seeds. I better give two of them over here to God. He says, you do that, but you neglect the weightier matters that involve the heart. You neglect justice and the love of God. 
These things you've ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in, in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked grace. People walk over them without knowing it. Here's what he's saying. When people walk by you, they all say, wow, what a spiritual man. Look at that. He's never committed adultery. He gives twice as much as I do. He's always in the synagogue. He's always doing that. And he says, when people walk by you, that's what they see. But it's just like a person walking over an unmarked grave. They have no idea. You look spiritual, but you're not. And then it gets more interesting. One of the lawyers answered him. You see the scribes or the lawyers and the Pharisees went together because the lawyers were the experts in the law and the Pharisees were the experts at propagating their traditions of men. But here's what one of the lawyers says. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Do you realize when you speak like that to the Pharisees, you insult us also? And he said, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves will not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I'll send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they'll kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel at the beginning of the Bible to the blood of Zechariah, which was the end of Second Chronicles, which would have been the end of the Jewish Bible who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it'll be required of this generation. He says, all your fathers, when I would send them prophets, they would kill them. They would kill them. And all you do is you decorate the graves of the prophets like, oh, we're so much better than our fathers. We're so much better than our fathers. And Jesus says it's prophesied that you're going to kill them too. Not only that, you're going to be accountable for every prophet that's been killed from the beginning until now. That's going to fall on you because they end up killing the prophet their Messiah, the Lord. And he says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself and you hindered those who are entering. He's saying by your moralism, you're not getting into heaven. By your traditions of the law that you live by, you're not getting into heaven. And not only that, those that want to get into heaven, you hinder them so they can't get in. You tell them they got to follow all your rules that you don't even follow, that you can't even do. And then no surprise, verse 53 says, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And then if you want a good summation of the Pharisees, look at Luke 12.1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, 
(laughs) thousands of people, he's about to say something. Here's what he says first. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He's saying, watch out for the moral ones who are hypocrites. They do it on the outside, but it's not done on the inside. Matthew 23, 15 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. What? Are you, are you kidding me? Why does Jesus talk so harshly? Did you know that when he's dealing with a prostitute or a sinner, he treats them gently, gently, but these proud, moral people who got their lives cleaned up and their favorite game is to look around and see how other people's lives don't match up to their life. And they come to them to find out how to learn the rules and what to do. And it's those that Jesus warns about. The extreme danger of this. Peter, I think, heard this teaching and is relaying the same thing in 2 Peter 2.19. Speaking of false prophets, he says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so they clean themselves up as they've heard about the gospel, heard about Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome. They just give up to their sin, they're done. What does he say? The last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What true the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. So there's certain type of person that maybe their life is all a mess and maybe uh, they're in trouble for their immoral behavior and they're like, I don't like the consequences of what my life looks like right now. I got to clean it up. And they hear about Jesus and they say, maybe this is the way to clean up my life. And so they begin to clean it up. Maybe they quit drinking or they quit sleeping around? Are they quit looking at pornography? Are they begin to clean it up for a while? But if that's all that's been done and there's no love for Christ and there's no true conversion where the Holy Spirit enters in and dwells, when the next fall comes, it might be worse than the first Paul warned us. It's not that it was just like that in Jesus' day. Here's what he prophesies into the future. 
as he's telling Timothy, right before Paul dies, the last letter he sends, as far as we know, is to Timothy. Here's what he says, but understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. I thought, well, that's a weird statement. All those people have the appearance of godliness? Go back and look at that list. You can have a clean life and have all that rotten stuff in your heart. Having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. The problem with the self-righteous. Let me see here. I got a feeling we're getting through half a sermon this morning. The problem with the unrighteous or with the self-righteous is they reject Jesus. They don't need Christ. They push him away. If you're good, you don't need a savior. You're the demon's easiest case. <laughs> Look at this person. They think they're fine. They're a good moral person in society. They give money to, you know, Wiley Park, and they do this, and they do that. Nicest guy. He'll give you the shirt off his back. Well, that's the easiest guy to get. But they won't love Christ. You remember the prostitute that wept at Jesus' feet? Jesus said she loves much because she's been forgiven much. She loved more than he looked at the Pharisees. He says, you haven't washed my feet since I come in here. You didn't do that for me. That would have been just normal courtesy in that day and age. But she comes and she washes my feet with her tears. And she loves me a lot because she knows she's a sinner. The self-righteous reject Christ. Here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul thinks of his life. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's saying, if I accept what these Judaizers are saying, that you need Jesus plus works in order to be saved, then you nullify the grace of Christ. You throw Christ away. You don't need him. Does the church really want to give their efforts and time and money, pull it away from preaching the gospel to sinners and make enemies out of our people, the group that lines up with the views we like are on our team, the other ones are the bad ones, they're on the other team? Do we really want to line up here and think, this is really how a person's heart's going to change? No, we're people as Christians, as ambassadors for Christ, we can go to the most immoral person, whether whatever that is in your mind. It could be someone struggling with homosexuality. It could be transgender. Can you come to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and share your life with them, invite them into your home, or are they too big of an enemy for you? 
Have we given away the gospel of Jesus Christ to try to have some type of America that makes us feel more comfortable? Now, let's be honest. When people are living moral lives, it is better for us. It is less crime, and it's preferable. People are more like us. But if all that happens, Jesus says that there's going to be greater judgment. No one had received greater judgment than the Pharisees. And they had their culture and their lives all tidied up. Romans 3.19 says, For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. One of the reasons Jesus gave the law is because the law shows his perfect holiness. He never gave it to man so that they could keep the law and be saved. The whole point of the law is, here's what I'm like. Look how much you fall short. Paul says, no one is going to be justified by keeping the law. The law came to shut your mouth, to make you say, I'm not good. There is no good people. There's no good people according to the scripture. It seems that way because God gives common grace to all people so that even unbelievers love their children and love their mothers. But if the common grace of God was pulled away, and on judgment day it will, their fullness of their rebellion will be shown. The Bible says there's no one good, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned, turned aside. All have become worthless. This is Paul, like a prosecuting attorney, tying up the whole world. And the reason why is if they don't realize they need Jesus because they're not good, they will not receive him. Moralism is the most popular thing going, and it's always been. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive because for a person to get saved is they have to say, I'm a sinner. I'm not good. I need to be saved. In fact, here's what the Bible teaches. The good ones go to hell and the bad ones go to heaven. Jesus said, I didn't come to save the righteous, but the sinners. The ones who know they need a savior and turn to him and cling to him are saved. The ones who think they're righteous, Jesus didn't come for those. He came for sinners. And I'm telling you, you all qualify. I qualify. But salvation is by grace through faith. The righteous person will not be with Christ, unless their righteousness, unless you can say with Paul, here's what Paul says about my life. He calls it excrement. He says, I add up every, all my morality. I, I, that's the word in the Greek. It's a swear word. He says, it's, it's nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. That's why he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. He's my life. He's my hope. And how does morality then, what's morality have to do with Christians? 
is because once the Holy Spirit's inside you is when you actually can have power inside you to fight the selfishness in your heart, the pride in your heart, the lust in your heart. True morality can only come from a born-again person who's with Christ. But that person ought never be proud because all that was by grace as a gift given to them. I think we're going to draw this uh, to a close. We'll we'll finish it next week. Next week, we're going to look at not only are the righteous not saved, but not those who merely bless him. Look at verse 27. As he was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. So this is, this is the highest praise. It's, it's, it's like a beatitude that was a common saying. If you were going to give someone the most public honor, you would say a statement like this. Blessed is the womb that bore you. Blessed are in the breast at which you nursed. So I think this woman's trying to figure out, like, am I with him or I'm against him? Well, I think, I, I think he's worthy to be praised, so bless him. And what does Jesus say? He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There's a lot of people that aren't against Jesus and think he's worthy of blessing but their word, Christ's word doesn't dwell inside their life. These people might even fight like crazy for Christian things. Yet if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell, you remember what Jesus said when all the disciples begin to leave him as he's giving these hard sayings, that unless they drink his blood, and eat his flesh. He's saying, unless you take all of me, you can't be my disciples. And they say, this is a hard saying. And everyone begins walking away. And he looks at, G- he looks at his disciples. He says, you guys want to leave too? What does Peter say? Where else are we going to go? For you have the words of life. Peter's not willing to walk away from the words of Christ. They're inside him. He loves them. That's where life and hope is. It's my prayer that every one of you knows Christ in that way. Hebrews 9.28 says, the first time Jesus came, he came to die for sins. The second time, he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. My question for you is, Is Christ dwelling in your heart in that way where you're waiting for him? You know your ultimate goodness is not on this earth but is bound up in Jesus Christ. And you can't wait for the day that he brings his kingdom where there's no more sickness, there's no more death, there's no more sin, there's no more fighting. My prayer is is that Christ dwells in your heart. We're going to look at that next week. The gift of the Holy Spirit that comes and resides in a person that doesn't first clean themselves up morally, but rather is humbled, repents of their sin, clings to their Savior, 
And then God working through them helps them overcome slavery to sin that maybe they struggle with their whole life and have never found victory. My prayer is that's how you know Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Your teaching is so rich. Lord, we confess that a church like ours, our greatest temptation is to become proud. The way we maybe live our life, the things we don't do. God, I do desire to live a holy life that would honor and glorify you, but I just confess that it can't come from my own power, but it's only because of the work you've done through the Spirit, through Christ. Lord, I pray that any morality that we have would just be to the praise and glory of the power of Christ. Lord, I pray that anything that hinders us from going to every type of person in Aberdeen, every type of political group in the United States, anything that hinders us, that's created enemies out of the same group we came from, a group of sinners that needs Jesus. Lord, I pray you would soften our hearts, that we would be people that would do the best we can with our civic responsibilities, but that our life would never be marked by merely that but by the precious gospel of Christ. Let that ring forth from our hearts. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.